All right. The Catholic Church in Crisis. This is the fitting title to Needham's last chapter of the second volume. I think another appropriate title would be The Prelude of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, in it, I, we see God setting the stage for his gospel truth to spread, uh, spread more freely and openly than it had in centuries of papal darkness. After a long and grievous captivity, Christ was setting the stage to again publicly demonstrate his dominion over all earthly and heavenly powers and his eternal love and fidelity to his people, whom he had been feeding in the wilderness all the while, even through the darkest of the dark ages. <clears throat> like, we re like we see in Revelation 17, where God puts it in the hearts of the ten kings to hate the whore of Babylon and make her desolate, so too in this final chapter of the Middle Ages, we see God use the kings of the earth to severely weaken the power of the Antichrist papacy. Those popes who, as we've seen in previous lessons, have already begun calling themselves vicars of Christ, which means substitutes of Christ, which is the literal meaning of Antichrist. But as the psalm says, the shields of the earth belong unto God, and he would use earthly means for the good of his people. And we'll see that as we study this chapter. And besides this, many of those wilderness sheep he emboldened to take a stand against the forces of the adversary, so that a combination of powers, spiritual and civil, would become his instruments for removing that anti-Christian papacy from the height of its power. And to this day, it is yet to reascend to those heights that it had in the worst of the Dark Ages. We will examine this period today, and then next week we'll take a break from our study of church history, and we'll begin turning to the book of Daniel uh, before we return to Needham's third volume to study the Reformation proper. Uh, but with that, let's move on to our handout, uh, the first question on the handout. And just as an FYI, we will be bouncing about a little bit between the questions for the first half of this lesson, so uh, make sure you keep track of that if you're following along in your sheet. But the first question is, what happens in Western Europe after the death of Innocent III? Well, the Catholic Church had reached the height of its political power in the reign of Pope Innocent III, and after his death, it was significantly weakened. There was continued conflict with the emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, that empire which was founded by Charlemagne the Great in 800 AD, uh, who had himself been crowned by a pope, Pope Leo III, which is question three in your handout, by the way, the Holy Roman Empire. However, the weakening of uh, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire due to their conflicts with the papacy resulted in France eventually becoming the greater threat to the pope. In particular, for the chapter we're discussing today, uh, the greatest French threat came from King Philip the Fair. According to Needham, King Philip of France was something of a tyrant, and his thirst for more power caused him to butt heads with the papacy. He caused the greatest trouble when he ordered a tax on all the clergy to fund his war with England, which the Pope didn't like very much. Uh, the Pope at the time, Boniface VIII, which is question six, uh, he was outraged at this, and he ordered that all who would impose such taxes on the clergy without the permission of the Pope would be excommunicated. Now, we don't see anything like this from the Word of God, of course, that any church authority has the right to declare whether a tax is lawful or not. We're simply told to pay tribute to whom tribute is due, but this is what the Pope did at the time. He said, unless you get our permission, you cannot tax the clergy. But King Philip the Fair did not take the threat of excommunication sitting down. He struck back at Pope Boniface by stopping the export of silver and gold from France. 
Rome, being as much an economic power as a spiritual power and needing much gold and silver for her kingdom, was forced to cave and allow the, uh, the clergy of France to voluntarily contribute money to King Philip's war effort. So it's not a mandatory tax, but you can voluntarily contribute, and we encourage you to do so. But the, con the conflict between King Philip and Boniface didn't end there. Pope Boniface sent a legate to King Philip complaining about some of his actions, which included seizure of church property. We wouldn't describe King Philip as a limited government kind of ruler. Uh, and what King Philip did in turn uh, was to arrest that legate for treason, and he called for a national assembly in, so in support of the defiance of the papacy, which assembly even included members of the French clergy. So this is taking the form at this point of something of a national resistance and pushback against the papacy on the part of France. Pope Boniface's counter move was to issue what's known as the Unum Sanctum, uh, which is question number seven. The Unum Sanctum was uh, Boniface's papal bull or edict uh, asserting his power over all things spiritual and secular in heaven and on earth. The title is Latin for one holy, uh, which comes from the opening of the edict, Unum Sanctum Ecclesium Catholicum et Ipsum Apostolicum, one holy and apostolic church. Unum, unum Sanctum Ecclesium Catholicum et Ipsum Apostolicum. One holy, you can see Catholic Apostolic there, so that's what it means. One, one holy and Catholic Apostolic Apostolic. I'm getting tongue-tied. But anyways, I do want to read a little bit from um, what Needham provides of that in the book, which is page 404 in your volume, so you get a sense of what this papal edict consisted of. We are forced by the faith to believe and hold, and we do indeed firmly and believe and sincerely confess that there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and that outside this church there is no salvation or forgiveness of sins. Both the spiritual and the civil sword are in the power of the church. The civil sword is to be used for the church, the spiritual sword by the church. The spiritual sword is to be used by the priest, the civil sword by kings and captains, but only at the will of the priest and by priestly permission. We declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary to salvation for every human being to be subject to the Roman Pope. So you see the, the amount of authority they're trying to claim for themselves at this point. There is no salvation unless you submit to Pope Boniface, according to him, or whoever might be the Pope in the future. Uh, which, as a side note, have you met a Catholic today who believes something like that? That's probably one of the few things that could get you kicked out of the Catholic Church by believing only Roman Catholics can be saved. Because they'll, they'll usher in uh, unbelieving Jews and Muslims to the kingdom of God at this point. But this was the state of the Roman Church at the time. But as you can expect, King Philip uh, did not buckle under this and instead declared that the Pope was unfit to continue in his position and he called for an ecumenical council to remove him. King Philip was joined in this declaration by the French clergy, Parliament, and the University of Paris. In response, Pope Boniface prepared to excommunicate King Philip and so King Philip, uh, to respond to this, kidnaps the Pope. Uh, the Pope actually eventually dies in prison, and so ends Pope Boniface VIII. Uh, but the drama continues. 
After Boniface's short-lived successor dies, the French faction of cardinals who are responsible for electing the next pope succeeds in electing a French pope instead of an Italian pope, uh, namely Pope Clement V. This new pope would never even set foot in Rome. And in an unprecedented move, he established the papal court in Avignon, France. Uh, so he's moving the, uh, the center of the papacy from Rome to Avignon, France, which brings us to question number two, the Avignonese captivity of the papacy. So the Avignonese captivity of the papacy is the roughly 70-year period where the French essentially hijacked the papacy. All the popes during this period were French, and they were influenced by French interests and by the French king. Needham goes as far as to say that Clement V was little more than a political tool of King Philip. This period is also known by some in Rome as the Babylonian captivity of the papacy, which is question eight. Now, this isn't to be confused with the Babylonian captivity of the church that Martin Luther describes. In Martin Luther's treatise, uh, the Babylonian captivity occurred when Rome, the city sitting on seven hills, brought the church into captivity through its unbiblical practice and doctrine. But if you ask Rome when the Babylonian captivity occurred, they would say it occurred only when the papacy wasn't headquartered in the city on seven hills, which is, I think, a, a tad bit ironic. In any case, uh, we, we ought to pause and consider the significance of this moment for church history. Um, the Bishop of Rome uh, had initially been held in high esteem by many of the early church fathers, not because of any infallible authority invested in it, but because of the close and organic connection to his office from the faithful men appointed by the apostles. For example, uh, Irenaeus the, uh, of the second century, if you recall him from volume one of Needham way back when, he appeals to the fact uh, that the teachings of the Gnostics weren't apostolic by pointing out that the Bishop of Rome and others of his day knew of no such doctrine. Uh, I'm going to quote a little bit uh, from him here because I want you to see, uh, you know, this, the, the influence of the Roman bishop didn't come out of nowhere, but the reasons that the early writers gave to valuing them and the value that they actually gave them were very different than what came later, and events like the Avignonese captivity are fundamentally undermining any initial reason for uh, valuing uh, the man who held that option. So here's, here's Irenaeus. It is within the power of all, therefore, and every church who may wish to see the truth to contemplate clearly the tradition of the apostles manifested throughout the whole world. And we are in a position to reckon up those who were by the apostles instituted bishops in the churches and to demonstrate the succession of these men to our own times, those who neither taught nor knew of anything like these heretics rave about. For if the apostles had known hidden mysteries, which they were in the habit of imparting to the perfect apart and privily from the rest, they would have delivered them especially to those who they were also committing the churches to themselves. Since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume of this to reckon up the successions of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who, in whatever manner, assemble in unauthorized meetings by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, and also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which came down to our time by means of the successions of bishops. So that's from, against heresies. 
Now, mind you, this is by no means Irenaeus' primary argument in his work. It's mostly an exposition of scripture, and it's a very large work. It's, it's a briefly mentioned secondary argument to help support what he's saying against the Gnostics, which basically amounts to, hey, the apostles founded these churches only about 100 years ago. We know who they appointed, and they, we know who those men appointed. None of them know anything about what you're talking about. So if somebody in a church as prominent as Rome doesn't know these teachings, how, how certain can we be that they're not uh, biblical. But again, this is a secondary argument. Um, so, but I did want you to see uh, why they did initially value the Bishop of Rome, and also how, in light of this, how, how preposterous it is to continue to value the Pope in the same way. Because now not only has a thousand years passed, but now this isn't a matter of faithful men appointing the office to other faithful men. This is a political hijacking of the office that occurred in Avignon. So they have no organic link to the apostles at this point. This is a political and national movement and transfer of the office. If that was the state of the Bishop of Rome when Irenaeus was writing, the Gnostics would have laughed at him. So we should take their claims no more seriously today of them representing Peter than we should take the, any claims of the, minister, the prime minister of Italy representing Julius Caesar. Uh, the, the situation is completely different. And men at this time began to recognize this, and this began a movement that we'll see in this point of history of pushing against the papacy, including figures as notable as William of Ockham. If you heard of Ockham's razor, it comes from him. He even began at this time to openly write against the papacy, despite other issues that he had. And anyways, uh, with all that said, uh, let's move to uh, question number four. And I'm going to open this one up to, to the group here. How does nationalism affect the papacy? Do you have any thoughts on this one? Europe is developing into, into sovereign states. In the sovereign states, the kings want power. And they don't want to send all their money to Rome. Mm -hmm. And then the pope wants his own power, so they start to butt heads, don't they? Um, and, and Rome's a long way away. Sean, do you have a comment? Yeah, so you, have, you, you see these nationalistic ideas causing division within the Roman church at this point. Uh, I think it, it, it shows us that nationalism is a side, is a thorn, excuse me, it's a thorn in the side of the papacy and it created great havoc for it. Uh, the papacy had at this point abandoned the goal of the church to be a spiritual institution with its mind on things above. Rather, because it was earthly and fleshly, it sought to be a rival earthly kingdom, essentially, even head over every other secular power, as we saw from Pope Boniface's edict there, where even the civil sword is under the authority of the pope. This meant that it sought to fill much of the same space as those uh, earthly nations, and thus any strengthening of those nations necessarily made them a threat and a rival to the papacy's own kingdom. And uh, it, it seems like this must still be the case today, because as recently as 2020, in an address to the UN, Pope Francis listed nationalism and protectionism as among the things that, quote, must not prevail, end quote. So it appears that little has changed. What about biblical Christianity, though? Well, it, biblical Christianity has never been at odds with a healthy nation state. The Lord and his disciples lived in a p peaceful subjection to the Roman Empire and never revolted or made efforts to weaken it, 
even when that ungodly nation turns its sword against them for obeying God rather than man. Uh, rather, the Bible instructs us to honor the king and pray for all those who are in authority, because far from being a hindrance of the mission of the church, usually the prosperity and health of a nation and her leaders is good for the church so she can leave a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. But for an institution like Rome, which has abandoned the biblical mission of the church, the prosperity of a nation and the honor its citizens give to it is nothing but competition. So the great uh, conflict that they had with the nations at the time, I think, is an indictment of the direction that Rome had been going. So believe it or not, we've already answered questions one through eight at this point, just in passing as we've gone through this all. So we're in question nine at this point, and we'll be a little bit more consistent in following the order for the rest of the lesson. Question nine is, what is the great schism of 1378 to 1417? Which is not to be confused, by the way, with the great schism between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, which happened uh, centuries before. The Great Schism begins where the Avignonese captivity ends. Pope Gregory XI had moved the papacy back to Rome, away from Avignon, France in 1377, but then he dies within a year. The cardinals were still dominated by the French faction at this point, uh, but they ended up electing an Italian pope who would keep the papacy at Rome because they were threatened by an Italian mob which further cements what we're talking about. We're not dealing with organic passing of the office from faithful men to faithful men at this point. This is competition of, of nations and factions for political power. Uh, however, after the cardinals elected the Italian pope and ceased to be threatened by the mob, they shortly voted to nullify the election since it was forced upon them under threat of violence. And so they voted again, and they voted for a French pope, Clement VII, who set up the papal court in Avignon, France again. However, the Italian pope, Urban VI, did not renounce his authority, and he maintained that he was the rightful pope. So now we have two popes, and this creates the great schism of 1378. Now, that might not seem to be as big of a deal as it is, because we have seen popes and anti-popes earlier in church history. But what makes this unique is that they were both elected by the cardinals. Remember, a few centuries ago, Pope Gregory VII had established that election of the Pope was to be by the cardinals, and that that was the official way of transmitting the office uh, down as part, of, as part of the Hildebrandine reforms. But both of these popes had been elected by the cardinals. So each pope could, uh, could claim official teaching of the Catholic Church to back it as the legitimate pope, and there was no other way to decide which of these was the right pope. And so each nation was kind of left for itself to say, well, which pope am I going to recognize? Um, some went with the Italian pope and some went to the, with the French pope, and medieval Europe was divided between two popes, which you can imagine further solely the reputation, the growingly bad reputation of the pope at this time. And this lasted about 40 years. It required a new approach to resolve it, which leads us to question number 10, the Council of Constance. The Council of Constance was the ecumenical council that ended the Great Schism, and it constituted the short-lived victory of the, what's known as the conciliar movement. 
The conciliar movement arose as a theory of church government that had followed the basic premises of the earlier critics of the papacy, like William of Ockham and Marsilius of Padua, who argued that ultimate ecclesiastical authority, ultimate authority in the church, did not rest with the pope, but rather with the church at large, and that ecumenical councils representing the whole Catholic church were able to override the pope and were more authoritative than the pope. That was the conciliar movement. Uh, it essentially visualized the universal church as a, a great big republic or representative democracy, uh, or perhaps you might think of it as a congregationalism where the congregation is the whole church Catholic and not local churches. Adherents to this theory were able to form such an ecumenical council, and they used its authority to establish the Italian Martin V as pope, ending the Great Schism. But it was a Puronic victory uh, for the Pope, because even though now we have one Pope again, Europe's united under one Pope, uh, this only happened because the Pope's authority that he'd been claiming for himself was undermined by an ecumenical council. And so the ecumenical council, uh, by this move, asserted itself as having more authority than the Roman Pope himself. Now, this wouldn't, this wouldn't last uh, forever, because eventually the, the councils would undermine their own credibility and the Pope's influence would increase again, which you can read about in the chapter. Uh, however, even this temporary subjection uh, continued to undermine the credibility and reputation of the office of the papacy. They can't claim any organic succession of their office, and if they truly were the vicar of Christ and the earthly head of the church, would this not endanger Christ's promise that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against the church, which, according to them, is secured on the rock of Peter's office? This undermines their claims that they represented a continued, unbroken uh, chain founded on the office of Peter. So I think in this study of history, we can see God making a spectacle about the blasphemous claims that they were making for themselves. But all that is to conclude our section on the uh, darkness of, of these ages. And we're going to look at some lights here now, some names that we might be more familiar with, uh, starting with John Wycliffe, who's also known as the morning star of the Reformation. You've, you may have heard a good deal about him before in terms of his work and doctrines, but I think the service that Needham gives us uh, is by discussing Wycliffe with all that we have already discussed as the backdrop. By framing Wycliffe's life in this context, you can see the threads of God's providence coming together to weave the tapestry of the budding Reformation. You see the undermining of the papacy in these centuries that are coming to pass, and then God raising up great men who are capable and willing of uh, pushing against it, like Wycliffe. So he originally rose to, to prominence through the protection and promotion of him by the English nobility because he combated the papacy's claim to have dominion over England in its secular matters even. Uh, so in one sense, this might look a little bit like we saw before, where the pope is trying to claim secular authority of a secular nation. Uh, but there actually is a little bit of an additional complication in the case of England, because King John had surrendered Eng England to Pope Innocent III a few centuries ago. Uh, if the name King John sounds familiar, he's the English king who was so notoriously bad that his barons revolted against him and forced him to sign the Magna Carta to protect the uh, rights of the English. He's also the villain of Robin Hood. In any case, uh, Wycliffe argued for the separate spheres of church and state and further argued that 
uh, if the church became corrupt and failed to fulfill their responsibilities, the state could take their secular power and depose them, excuse me, their secular property and depose them. As such, Wycliffe became an early hero of the, uh, of the uh, ordinary people and the uh, ordinary clergymen, but an early enemy of the higher religious establishment of his day. After the great schism erupted and the vanity and ineffectiveness of the uh, uh, Roman office became painfully obvious, Wycliffe lived at the right time to be a powerful voice for the truth. He boldly proclaimed scripture to be the only final authority and genuine source of Christian doctrine, and that all other authorities were subject to it and to be disregarded if they strayed from the rule of scripture. And that included popes, church fathers, and against the conciliar movement, even ecumenical councils are subject to the scriptures, according to John Wycliffe. Now, uh, this is not, of course, to say that he disregarded the church and men who came before him altogether as if God hadn't revealed the truths of, of Scripture to anybody before him and it was all starting afresh for the first time. We need to state this clear today because we live in a time where there's a twisting of the biblical doctrine of sola scriptura, which is the doctrine that the Word of God is the only ultimate source of faith and practice. They're twisting this into a manifestly unbiblical doctrine that undermines the tools that God in his word prescribes and ordains for the church, namely men of God who he rises up from generation to generation as under shepherds uh, and their authority both as individual teachers and collectively when they come in council together like we see in Acts chapter 15, for example. Wycliffe did not deny any of this. Uh, nor were any of the reformers who championed the truth of sola scriptura. In fact, Wycliffe was very much a student of Augustine and benefited much from him, for example. Rather, what Wycliffe did, uh, what Wycliffe did teach in opposition to Rome is that there are not two streams or two sources of truth, but there's only one source of truth, and that's the Bible. God has set men of God in the church as tools to help teach the truths of the Bible, but those men are not additional sources of truth, and they have no authority to add or to take away from the truths of Scripture, but are servants indebted to us to give us God's truth and only God's truth. In Rome, the whole of the spiritual truths that you need for salvation is a combination of two things, what you can find in the Bible and also what you can find from their allegedly oral tradition which we know in practice ends up becoming the real final authority, which undermines even the teachings of Scripture to itself. But in Wycliffe's view and in the view of Scripture, there isn't a source A and a source B, but only source A, which is Scripture, and that has all spiritual truths we need and is the only reliable source of them. And the men God raises up are simply his ministers to convey that truth. So all of this is what we call Scripture's infallibility and its sufficiency. But Wycliffe taught another important doctrine, which is known as the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture. This teaching means that even though men of God are indispensable for the health and growth of the church and its knowledge of the truths of Scripture, the Bible is also not some dark and impossible book that makes us absolutely dependent on others to understand it. If it was, we wouldn't be in that much better position of Rome. We'd still be left to, to have implicit faith on a, on a specific man and hope that he understands it right on our behalf. Uh, we'd have to take his word for it. But that's not the case. The word is a light unto our feet. And as our confession says, even the unlearned and the uneducated can read it and understand everything that's necessary for salvation through a due use of ordinary means. 
The gospel message is simple enough that a child can understand it. The Bible is indeed a big book and a profound one that instructs us to meditate on its teachings, and so we benefit greatly from the men before us who've poured out great time and energy into that study and meditation. But after they give us the fruits of that meditation and explain their scriptural reasons for their conclusion, the Bible is also clear enough that we can go to those places they direct us to and determine whether they're pulling our leg or not. This is liberating because it, what it means is that all of us, each of us, can rest with confidence in God's words as they're preached to us and not be left to wishfully hope that we have an honest teacher. We can know that the men we respect are faithfully teaching the word. And this gets us back to, to Wycliffe. Uh, the clarity or perspicuity of scripture means that it is both good and necessary to translate the Bible into common languages. Because the argument for Rome for not translating the Bible is that it's a dark book, the people won't be able to understand it, and they'll twist it to all sorts of heresies. But this scriptural truth about its clarity means that the people of God can understand scripture if the Spirit gives them ears to hear. And they must be able to read and understand it if they can identify true churches of God and unite with other believers. Indeed, the Bible calls itself the sword of the Spirit and necessary for the Christian in fending off against the adversary. How can we do this if it's not even in our language? Thus, Wycliffe spearheaded the great work of translating the Bible into English for the first time, which all of us English speakers ever owe him a great debt of gratitude for. In addition to translating the scriptures into English, Wycliffe rightly defined the church Catholic as the whole body of the elect saved by grace alone, rather than any outward institution like the papacy or a hierarchy of bishops, anything like we see in the East or the West. Um, and he declared that all popes are antichrist, and he repudiated the novel doctrine of transubstantiation that at that point had dominated uh, Roman theology. Wycliffe's ministry was centered on the word of God, not the abominable mass of Rome. The Lord protected him, and he died of natural causes in 1384. But after about 30 years, his body was dug up and burnt for his alleged heresy. But his legacy was not burned up with him, and he had a group of followers who were known as the Lollards, which is question number 12. Uh, they were the followers of Wycliffe, and... The term Lollard probably means mumblers. It was a term of derision cast against them. And they're in many ways like the Waldensians of England. And like the Waldensians, they would join with the Protestants at the advent of the Reformation because they saw them as teaching the same things that they did. The Lollards were fiercely persecuted under Henry V and were burned at the stake for their beliefs, but God nevertheless preserved them until the time of the Reformation. Needham uh, mentions as an example Sir John Oldcastle or Lord Cobham, who you can read about in Fox's Book of Martyrs if you, if you haven't, which I highly recommend you do. It's, it's full of many inspirational accounts of the lives of these men and their faithfulness even unto death for the cause of Christ. Um, but uh, I'm going to pass on, on saying more about that and move on to question number 13. Although I will say before I do that, that he lived from 1378 to 1417, which I think is interesting because that was the exact years of the Great Schism, uh, 1378 to 1417. I don't know if that means anything. I just thought that was interesting. Um, anyways, question number 13, um, John Hus. So he was the great pre-Reformation Bohemian reformer and one of the many great fruits of Wycliffe's ministry. 
Many Bohemian students had studied in Oxford at the time of John Wycliffe, and they brought his ideas back to Bohemia, where they spread rapidly among the many that were recognizing the deadness of the papacy at the time of the Great Schism. Huss was, the, was a great admirer of Wycliffe. Uh, according to Needham, some of his works even came close to plagiarizing him. Uh, he, was, he was definitely a, a great admirer of his. Um, but remember, we didn't have the same copyright laws back then as we do today, so don't read too much into that. Um, he led the Bohemian charge for reform under uh, the king of Bohemia, King Wenceslas, which isn't to be confused with good King Wenceslas of the Christmas Carol, although I think he is a pretty good King Wenceslas, maybe even a better King Wenceslas. Uh, the reform effort, with the backing of the king and its broad public support, took on the character of a national movement. So yet again, we see these national movements being a thorn in the side of the pope. Uh, Hus fiercely attacked the Roman practice of selling indulgences for the forgiveness of sins, much like Martin Luther would later. And on this account, he was excommunicated by the pope uh, that Bohemia was supporting at the time of the Great Schism. And as a result, he had to flee from Prague to southern Bohemia. This attack on Catholic teachings actually cost him some of his previous supporters, but Hus was committed to faithfully discharge his duty in declaring the whole counsel of God to the extent that he had been enlightened to it. For this and for other biblical views, he was summoned to the Council of Constance, which was that very same council that would end up ending the Great Schism in 1417. Uh, but the council would not even give him a chance to defend himself. It imprisoned him for months in, in horrible conditions, and then he, they burnt him at the stake in 1415, two years before the end of the Great Schism. Uh, but Hus remained true to the end. He refused to recant his views, instead saying, I shall die with joy today in the faith of the gospel which I have preached. They killed Hus, but like Wycliffe, his legacy lived on, and as Needham says in the 16th century, the Hussite movement flowed into the mightier ocean of Protestantism. So those are the, probably the two most familiar names uh, that we have today, Hus and Wycliffe, and those are um, two great lights that God had raised up at that time of, of darkness to help pave the way of the Reformation. Last two questions uh, uh, move away from that to another important figure of, from that time, uh, namely Dante Alighieri. Uh, Dante Alighieri was the author of the Divine Comedy, and he lived from 1265 to 1321 and involved himself in the politics of his native city, Florence, at the first. And he opposed the efforts of Pope Boniface, actually, in his ambition to obtain more secular power. Dante rightly understood that there was a division between church and state, and that each had its proper sphere, even though otherwise Dante did indeed have quite Roman Catholic beliefs. So, no one I say he's the, the most famous Christian poet of the time, I'm using the term Christian in the broadest and loosest sense. But, in any case, when he published his work declaring the, separate, or, or the, the different spheres of church and state, uh, the Pope had, it, had that work burnt, so Dante must have been doing something right on, on that front. Uh, question number 15 is on his Divine Comedy, which is his most famous work. It's divided into three parts, the Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise. So again, he was very Roman Catholic, uh, despite his critiques of the actions of the Pope. Uh, in the Divine Comedy, you have the pagan poet 
Virgil guiding him through hell and then through purgatory, but Virgil cannot take him to paradise. But apparently he can take him out of hell, so there's that. Uh, he is then guided by the love of his youth to paradise, and then Bernard of Clairvaux pres uh, presents him to Mary to see the Trinity through her mediation, blasphemously substituting her for the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So in our last question, we again are reminded that there was darkness indeed during the Middle Ages. Uh, but let that not take away from the light that we've already read about uh, today and talked about today. Uh, and the providence of God working to dispel that darkness by the light of his truth. God did not abandon his church in this time. And if God was able to preserve his church even through the worst of the Middle Ages and to even in that time raise up great lights and testimonies to his truth, how much more should we trust that he will deliver us from any darkness that the adversary might bring against his church? Let us remember the words of the great deliverer. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. All right, and that ends our lesson. Do we have any questions or comments today? Yeah. So his work had tremendous, it left an imprint on the, on the brains of the Catholics. They didn't forget him very quickly. Yeah. Neither did Luther. In fact, there's a, a, Luther saw himself as fulfilling this alleged prophecy that Hus made when he was dying at the stake that today you're, you're burning a goose, but in a hundred years uh, God will raise up a swan. And now, whether or not that's true or not is another matter, but his legacy is very much imprinted in the men of the time of the Reformation. And he d definitely became a martyr for the cause of Reformation. All right, any other questions or comments? I know this today we just kind of steamrolled through thing, not, not a lot of time for back and forth. But anyways, we're, we're, we're done with uh, Volume 2 of Church History. We've made it through the Middle Ages, and I hope you all are looking forward to the more familiar names of the Reformation and our study of Daniel, which will come first. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you this day for being with us and for being with your people through all this time, that you've never left them, but you've always been with them and raised up uh, men of God for them, and that you continue to be with us to this day and strengthening us by your Spirit. I ask that that spirit of truth would be with us today, that he would enlighten us to the truths of your scripture, build us up into your holy temple, pure and undefiled, and let us look for and wait for and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ for the sufficiency of all that we need in life. In Jesus' name, amen.